Our passage today comes from the book of Acts, chapter 24, verses 1 through 21. Acts chapter 24, verses 1 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from every, about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men, these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came bring, to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. May God bless the reading and hearing of this word. Please be seated. Okay, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we, good morning, can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, we had a great celebration, uh, 55 years last Sunday at church, and uh, it's a joy to uh, just to see what God's been doing, uh, how faithful he's been to our church body over many, many years, and uh, even though I've just been a short part of it, um, yeah, it's just been awesome to see how God has really sustained this church over the years, and even the past few years, what God's been doing, and uh, I was very encouraged to see many people um, in our EM just, you know, serving in the background, and just to see... Uh, the willingness of the hearts of people. So, um, very encouraged by that. Um, this morning, we are continuing in the series of the book of Acts, and we are about to finish that. And uh, we're going to look at this one passage here, and uh, in a couple weeks, we'll finish off the series in uh, Acts 28. So, uh, before we talk about this passage, I'm going to just ask us to go to the Lord in prayer one more time. And so, please, uh, if you would join with me uh, as we just come before the Lord, let's pray. Father, thank you for 
this opportunity that we have to just come before you in your presence to worship you, Lord. And as we just read, it's, respect, it's with respect to the resurrection of Jesus that we are here today to worship you. And we declare to you, Jesus, that you are God and King, uh, that you are our Savior. And Lord, you're the one that came down. You're the one who has saved us. Uh, you have removed the guilt of our sin away from us. And Lord, you're the one who is with us now through your word to speak to us and to transform us into your people and into a worshiping community that sent on mission this world. Uh, transform us, change us, shape us. Lord, we pray by your word and your spirit this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I want to share with you the case of a uh, cake baker named Jack Phillips, who is the owner of a cake shop named Masterpiece Cake Shop in Lakewood, Colorado. Um, I had always heard about this cake baker from afar. I heard about him in the news, but until recently, I had never really known his real story or his full story of this cake baker. How many guys have heard of this, this man? All right. Yes, yeah, so several of you. And um, again, hearing from the, the media from afar, but um, I want to share with you a little bit more about his background and story. So Jack here, uh, he has always loved art and baking. And for many years, he decided he had dreamed about combining his two passions together and opening up some kind of business or some kind of shop that would express his two passions, his loves. So he opened up the shop about 25 years ago and named it as such, Masterpiece Cake Shop. And the two reasons why he named it Masterpiece was first because as a Christian, uh, he knew that he could not serve two masters. And he knew that Jesus Christ, his Lord and Savior, was the only master he could really serve. And thus naming his shop Masterpiece, it was to constantly remind him of who he is always serving, Jesus Christ. But he also wanted an art gallery of cakes. Uh, he wanted to express his creative designs, crafts, and he would uh, handcraft and he would personally paint uh, each cake that he produced through his business. And the first reporter who went to observe and to write up a piece on his cake shop uh, called it in the article that it truly was an art gallery of cakes. And so he hung up that article uh, in his shop as just as a reminder and um, just kind of as a tribute. Well, Jack uh, always sought to operate his business in, consistent with his Christian faith and principles. And so he would treat all his customers with the utmost dignity and respect uh, he would give a warm welcome and smile to each customer. Um, he would make his cakes as beautiful as he possibly could. Um, his shop was not detached from the rest of the community. It was immersed in, in a lot or a portion of the community uh, that very much was in the midst of the variety of different uh, people there. So next to his shop is a tattoo parlor. Uh, there is a marijuana joint right across the street from his shop. There's a gun shop as well, right in the same lot. 
And you can kind of imagine that there are all kinds of people who would come into his shop for a cake. But no matter what their background, no matter what um, their belief or anything, uh, whatever they look like, he wanted to be sure that he conveyed the utmost respect and warmth and love to every single person who walked through the doors of his shop. Um, just one example of that uh, that, w- that uh, was shared and that I heard about was that there was one, one time a very unkempt man uh, dressed in trousers and half his trouser was kind of, uh, you know, just kind of off to the side a little bit. He was, he was big, a little bit burly. Uh, he had re- he had, there was an odor about him as well. And while Jack was preoccupied dealing with one of the customers and just interacting with that customer, this, this man just kind of stood in the shop in the corner just kind of looking very sort of grim, um, you know, very blank, and kind of an imposing sort of presence right there. And when Jack was finished interacting with this customer, he went over to this, this man and uh, just really smiled and, uh, you know, just had a conversation with him, how are you doing, and all of that. And this man apparently had like this half smile on his face. Uh, he was sort of satisfied, and he walked out. And when he was asked, uh, what was that all about? He said, oh, that's my friend. Uh, sometimes he wants to talk, and other times he just wants to shake hands and he leaves. But uh, whatever he needs, I try, to, I try to just serve whatever he needs for that day. And... Um, and that's, he comes by regularly. Well, over the years, um, Jack would regularly deny requests for all kinds of cakes. Cakes that, were, that had an anti-LGBTQ slogan. Um, cakes that were anti-American. Uh, cakes that had lewd themes or words on it. Because he was very... He wanted very much to base his work and his vocation consistent with his Christian faith. One day, a same-sex couple comes into the shop, and they wanted to celebrate their wedding. And he apologized to them uh, that, I'm sorry, I cannot fulfill your particular request but he offered them anything in the shop that he could offer them. You could, you're welcome to anything in the rest of the shop, the brownies, the cookies, anything else that you see. But uh, this one request, I, I apologize, but I cannot fulfill that request for you. The couple responded by giving him the finger, uh, cussing him out. And then um, in the ensuing days, they created a boycott, um, picketing in front of his shop, Uh, gathering other people to try to picket in front of the shop as well, and eventually filing a lawsuit uh, through the state of Colorado. And for the next several years, uh, Jack would consistently receive all kinds of uh, death threats, threats to his shop, his business, and so forth, uh, for six and a half years since that time. Well, this uh, particular case was brought up before the uh, local commission, um, to the uh, business commission, Civil Rights Commission, and the local commission ruled that Jack uh, made a ruling that made him lose basically about 40% of his business from that point on. And they required Jack to report on a quarterly basis to, uh, to the government every single time he declined to make a particular cake design and to explain in detail why he made that, uh, why he declined. 
It also required him to re-educate his own family members, essentially telling them he's wrong and that he was wrong to run and operate his business according to those, to his personal convictions and biz, uh, his uh, faith. This case uh, eventually went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court and came to be known as the Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission and made it all the way to there. Um, I'm not here to tell you the outcome of that particular case or to go into the legalities or any of that. But I want to say to you that um, as you hear this, regardless of where you stand personally as a Christian, if you were in Jack's shoes, and regardless of what you would have done in that exact same situation and how you feel would have been the best display or expression of your faith in Christ, the display of the gospel, I think one thing is very clear that... um, we are living undeniably in a cultural moment where living out our faith in public or living out our faith uh, in the workplace or in any other venue requires more and more of a cost. And that is undeniable. Uh, It is harder, I think, today to identify as a Christian than it was 20 years ago, 15 years ago. I remember when I first became a Christian about 30 years ago. Uh, It's much, much harder today. There are issues of separation of church and state uh, today where those lines are becoming more and more blurred um, in our culture. There's issues of gender and sexual identity and same-sex marriage that um, I think we would agree as a church that if we are not in affirmation that we would be then labeled as a, as a danger, uh, as a threat, as divisive to the civil order and the common good. And these things are becoming more prevalent. Um, as I share this story, I'm also reminded of the fact that uh, even this past week, there are literally millions of Christians around the world uh, who face all kinds of persecution and threat for their faith in Christ. Literally, Uh, facing the threat of imprisonment or death. Uh, We here in the United States, we don't face imprisonment or we don't face the threat of imprisonment or death because of our faith in Christ. However, we here in the United States and the West, we do face a very strong, strong uh, cultural and political pressure to, A, keep your faith private. Do not publicize your faith. Do not, no matter what, you know, keep your religion to yourself, keep it locked up, uh, maybe on Sunday, but don't bring it into the workplace, don't bring it into the public sphere. And not only that, but if you are going to operate um, by our, the cultural principles, uh, it's becoming harder to sometimes express your faith in the way that you go about working or go about uh, just doing whatever God has called you to in, in a public way. So the question is this, what does it mean uh, for us living here in the 21st century, uh, L.A. County, here in the SGV or wherever, but what does it mean to live as a faithful witness to Christ in our context, in our cultural moment? What is that supposed to look like 
in a place like Los Angeles in LA where it's very hard to stand up courageously, how do we faithfully witness to Christ in a way that is both loving, that's gracious, and yet that is uncompromising? It's, it is not easy, right? The passage that we just read uh, this morning, Acts chapter 24, I believe uh, gives us some timely biblical wisdom to be able to speak into the church today in our in what it means to be a faithful witness. Paul, up to this point, throughout m- most of his ministry or most of his Christian life, was pretty much in control of his life. So if Paul said, you know, I think I want to go here, I want to evangelize, and I want to plant churches, for the most part, that happened. He was pretty successful in whatever goals he set out to accomplish. Right? There was not much hindrance until he goes to Jerusalem. And by the time he gets to Jerusalem, he's then falsely accused, and at that point, his life is completely turned around. And since this imprisonment in Jerusalem, he's no longer pretty much in control of his life or in control of his choices or, well, of the goals that he kind of had set out. Instead, what you find Paul in the rest of the book of Acts is he's constantly just reacting He's reacting to opposition. He's reacting to threats. Uh, he's being put on trial. He's, being, he's going to be put in prison. All of these things are happening. And um, his life is pretty much destabilized. And he undergoes a series of five trials. And uh, here in Acts 24, we find him in the midst of one of these five. So, Paul here facing trial before Felix, the Roman governor of Judea. And we want to learn from Paul's example of what bold, compassionate, loving witness in the, maybe in a hostile in vi- environment that is opposing him, what does this actually look like? And I want to share with you um, three kind of basic points about this, but I want to talk about the conflict of witnessing, the character of witnessing, and the conviction of witnessing. The, conf- the conflict, character, and conviction of witnessing. The first one is the conflict of witnessing. The conflict. Um, Go back with me to the beginning of Acts chapter 24. Uh, We're going to look at this passage again. And I just want to point out something uh, very simple here. But in Acts 24, Luke records for us, And after five days, a high priest Ananias came down with some elders and spokesmen, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made in this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we found this man a plague, one who stirs up rights among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And in here, what we basically find is that this lawyer, a Tertullus, who's representing the government, 
comes and he accuses Paul basically of three things in this passage. First of all, he accuses Paul, verse 5, of being this plague. Right? That's, that's a pretty unflattering term, right? But he's basically saying, hey, look, this guy Paul, he's a pest. Uh, he's a troublemaker. He's disruptive of the Roman peace. And uh, wherever he goes out, it seems like Paul, he just, you know, these fights break out, these riots, right? This, he just has this polarizing kind of effect wherever he goes. But the second thing that he accuses Paul is that he's a leader of a sectarian movement called the Nazarenes. And Tertullus purposely here calls it a sect. Why? Because by calling it thus, it's like saying, hey, look, this is a splinter movement, right? This is away from the mainstream. Um, this is kind of like a cult. And uh, Jewish Judaism was well protected under Roman and Jewish law, of course, but uh, anything that was considered the splinter movement, uh, you're pretty much vulnerable at that point. And then three... The third basic charge here in verse 6 is that Paul was being disruptive in the temple. And this is one of the most serious charges, especially for, as a Jewish person, because this could lead to the death penalty right here. Um, so this is in reference, uh, we, we read earlier of how Paul was accused of bringing in this Gentile Trophimus into the temple courts in violation of third Jewish law, but also Roman law as well. Um, so the basic accusation we're finding in this passage was that Paul was basically going against Mosaic law and Roman order, civil order. And I think if, if Luke is showing us anything uh, through these chapters here in the second half of the book of Acts is this, that um, conflict with the gospel has always been around. This is nothing new. Uh, it happened back then, and it's happened throughout the ages, and it will continue to happen until Christ returns. This is the nature of witnessing. This is the nature of the gospel as well. There is always going to be conflict with the culture, and we can't avoid it. We, can't, we shouldn't seek to avoid it at all either, right? We seek to be as loving as we can. Uh, we seek not to create any conflict. That is not our goal. And we, 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 we're not seeking to be controversial for controversy's sake. There's no, there's no good in that at all. Yet at the same time, conflict is unavoidable. And this is very clear with the life of Jesus, as well as the example of Paul in the book of Acts. Jesus said, a student is not above his master. So Jesus went through it why would we expect anything less as followers of Jesus? But the second thing that I want to show you in this passage, and I think this is really important, is that uh, that's the character of witnessing, the character of witnessing. And uh, I want to show you um, just through these verses, verses 10 through 12, uh, how does Paul address this? How does Paul address the charges? Uh, what does he say? Um, how does he generally try to deal with it? Well, verses 10 through 12, uh, Paul says, And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. In other words, Paul is being as respectful as he possibly can to the civil authorities, leaders, right? Um, thank you. Thank you for allowing me this opportunity to speak my defense 
And this is Paul's way of honoring and respecting um, the leaders and the governing authorities as much as possible. And he goes on to say, You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disrupting or disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. And what he's basically saying, Paul, in these verses, uh, up to verse 12, is this. That, look, um, these, these riots and these conflicts that this lawyer, Tertullus, is making an accusation against me, they, weren't, they actually weren't caused by me. This, you know, it wasn't my doing. It wasn't my choice. And these are things that were beyond my control. And Paul makes it clear that these charges are unsubstantiated. You cannot verify these charges. In fact, they could be refuted by anyone who was there because there's eyewitnesses. Paul didn't, was not the source. And Paul had earlier mentioned uh, that, you know, he appeared before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish courts. These charges, didn't, they didn't stick. Uh, he appeared before a Roman authority as well, uh, Claudius, Lysias, the Sanhedrin, but they couldn't find any fault to these charges. So why, why now? Um, and if anything, I think Luke is showing us through this response and through this narrative of Paul that um, Christianity has always been found really um, not guilty on Roman law based on Roman law and the charges of disputing peace and destabilizing society. These are simply not true. And Luke is affirming that. And Paul, if anything, he's saying, look, I, I'm trying to be as obedient as I can. I'm trying to follow the rules as, as best as, as I understand as I can. Um, in other words, he's saying that my civil record is clean. Right? I'm, being, I'm trying to be a good citizen, really. And in, in verses, I want to show you uh, one other part. Is, uh, we're going to skip down to verses 16 to uh, 19. But Paul, he talks not only about his civil record, but he's talking about his religious record as well. Verses 16 to 19 says, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and present offerings uh, while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should, should they have anything against me. Okay, so there's two things, right? Two lines of reasoning that Paul is going through. He's saying, hey, look, in the civil laws, authorities, it's clean. I, I, I didn't violate. I didn't do anything wrong. But also, too, I'm trying to be a good Jew. I'm trying to worship I'm, I'm bringing my alms, um, and, you know, other Jews, like, they, they ought to be here. They, can, they should be able to testify to you that, yeah, that, you know, they can't verify that these uh, accusations are true. There's nothing against me, really. And so Paul, Luke is, uh, Luke is clearly showing us something about Paul that, really, he was a good citizen. He really was. And he was a good member of Jewish society. And he obeyed everything as, as best as he could, so long as it didn't violate God's law. 
And there's something to this that I think is very important for us as Christians today as well, right? Here in the 21st century. But um, if we are going to be blamed, and if we're going to be, um, in a sense, in any way vilified for our faith in Christ, let it be because of our convictions, but not because of our lack of compassion or character, right? Don't let it be because, you know, we weren't gracious, we weren't respectful, we weren't loving. Uh, don't let it be because, you know, there's something in our character, the way we're conducting ourselves, that people could say, look, you know, they're, they're clearly not, you know, a good person to work with, or they're not a good person to uh, be neighbors with, or whoever. Right. And this is, this is something that's important that we keep in mind, um, that as followers of Jesus, um, the best way, one of the best ways, right, to counteract and one of the best ways to be salt and light, not just counteract, but to live as a countercultural people who've been called out, but who are called to be salt and light in our world, is that we seek to respect and we seek to dignify all people, right, as much as possible, regardless of background, opinion, or uh, differences of opinion or choices or any of that, we seek as best as we can to dignify everyone, respect. And instead of portraying a message of what we are against, we should be much more known for what we are actually for. And that we are people who are actually for compassion, for love. Uh, we are a people who seeks the very best of our culture and our society, yet without compromising our core convictions, our beliefs. Um, I think about this as far as how, you know, do we go about doing this, and how does this work, and how does this flesh out in our day-to-day -day life, right? But uh, we were just talking this morning uh, in our evangelism class uh, this morning, if there's, uh, that, you know, just a group of us, and um, how easy it is, right, here in Los Angeles, L.A., it's very easy for us to live next to someone and not know them, right? We, we easily uh, commute to our work, we come back, we park our car in the garage, uh, or, you know, outside or wherever, we go right into our house, um, and we, we don't really even get to know the people who are living right next to us very well, right, or right across the street from us. And it's very easy uh, sometimes, you know, even when the neighbors see me, like sometimes I'm like, I, I see them and I'm trying to make eye contact with them, you know, so I could actually engage them. And they, they know that I'm there, but then they're not even making eye contact once. I think I'm a, I think I'm a friendly guy, right? So, but it's like, yeah, I wonder why they're not looking at me, right? But that's, it's just the culture that we live in, right? It's very, very like that. Um, but one of the things that I try to do, and it's, I think it's important as, as a Christian, is that we have to make extra, extra effort. We have to, in a sense, go out of our way to not only just be cordial, but to demonstrate uh, compassion, respect, friendliness, love. Um, we have to think of creative ways of how to do that. But we have to be very intentional and, and make an extra effort to do that. And so we think about, um, you know, we kind of about, you know, <laughs> you know, one of the examples is, you know, even like walking my dog in the morning. You know, like I walk my dog like about three, like four times a week. 
And believe it or not, like that has opened up an opportunity for me to get to know my neighbors. One of the persons out in the front, uh, he's, out, he's kind of out there all the time in the morning for some reason. And every time I walk my dog, uh, he's like in the lawn. And so instead of just walking right past him, like I say, hey, how's it going, Peter? You know, not Peter Heat, but uh, a different Peter. Hey, how's it going, Peter? You know, and, and we're able to talk and interact and dialogue. And that's a way that, I, you know, I've gotten to know him. I've gotten to know more about his story, his background, uh, all of these things. But instead of just, uh, I could easily just whip past him. I could easily just kind of, you know, be focused on my task. But I want to go out of my way to really just engage, Right? And think about your neighborhoods. Uh, think about communities, right? But what does it mean to purposely serve our community? Right? What does it mean um, to go out of your way, volunteering, maybe at the local PTA, right? Or uh, in Helena's case, the, the band booster, right? <laughs> so Friday nights, uh, you know, Saturday or whatever. But what does it mean to just say, hey, I want to serve our community. I want to go out of my way to, uh, to be a blessing and to show that I really, really want to be uh, a good citizen, neighbor, uh, all of that, right? But thinking about all these possibilities. But we have to be actively salt and light. We don't wait, in a sense, for the culture or for people to come to us. We must go to them. And we must actively seek to be that for our community in the best that we know. If you're a student, if you're at work, right, what does it mean to, in a sense, go bend over backwards to help your coworkers, right? What does it mean to um, maybe take on that extra responsibility that maybe you're not going to get compensated for, but you know what? Maybe it's, it's a good way to demonstrate your faith in Christ in the workplace. Maybe they know that you're dependable, you're faithful, you're honest, and so they've given you more and it may be a little bit burdensome, but it's a great way to demonstrate as a, as a uh, follower of Jesus, I can do that. And let me do that for the good of our company. Let me do that for the good of this work environment, right? But there's a lot of different ways to do that. But the third thing I want to talk about is this. Uh, verses 16, or 14 to 16 and verse 20 through 21, uh, Paul goes on to say this. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. And in verse 20 through 21, Paul says this, Or else... Uh, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with res respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. And the final thing that we see from Paul's example is really the conviction of witnessing, right? Uh, we see conflict and we see the character, but at the same time, we see that there is this inner conviction within Paul to to witness not only through being a good citizen, uh, by being as helpful to the society around him as, as possible, but by clearly pointing to Jesus. 
by clearly pointing to the reality of God and Christ and the gospel. So the real issue, what Paul is basically saying here is, look, when it comes down to it, it's, it's really because of this message that I'm testifying to. That's the real issue. Um, the fact that Paul was proclaiming the resurrection of the dead, but ultimately the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the reality of Christ, this is basically what got him into trouble in the first place. And he is making a reference again to a common Jewish belief of the resurrection of the dead, but ultimately Paul's message was to talk about the basis of this resurrection hope, and that is Christ himself. The Christ is risen. And the resurrection of Christ is a core doctrine of our Christian faith. And the resurrection of Christ means that Jesus is Lord. That his death on the cross was made to secure the forgiveness of our sins and to remove our guilt before God. And that Jesus will one day come back to judge the living and the dead. He will come back to judge the world. And this, what Paul is saying, this core message is the real issue. This is why I'm on trial before you this day. Paul was not ashamed to ultimately share the gospel, the reality of the gospel. And I think if we're to live as faithful witnesses to Christ in an increasingly post-Christian culture, we cannot avoid this conflict. And we cannot avoid the cost, the suffering that comes from our faith and our message. We cannot avoid being belittled or marginalized. It's inevitable. And if we do not face conflict because of this message, then perhaps we are avoiding the message of the cross. We shouldn't be looking into, we shouldn't be looking to get into trouble for our faith. Clearly not. There's no virtue in that. But my question is, are we willing to be clearly identified as Christians to those around you? Are you willing to be clearly identified as a Christ follower? Are you willing to bring up the gospel in conversations with friends, with coworkers, when the opportunity is there? Not forcing it, not shoving it, but are we able to pursue intentionality with the gospel? I think that's, that's an important issue. Um, are we willing to not siphon off our faith as private, but to make our faith public and not be ashamed of the message of the cross? Are we willing to take those steps of courage uh, it takes a lot of courage, knowing that there is, could be a cost. But we see ultimately the reason why Paul was willing to pay a cost. And this reason goes back to verse 16. 
in verse 16, Paul says that I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Paul was able to keep a clear conscience before God and man. He kept it clear before man because he knew that everything he tried to do was out of love. He tried to, to serve the people around him the best he knew how. But he could keep his conscience clear before God because ultimately, ultimately, not only did he know that Christ died for his sins, not only did he know that his guilt was removed, and so that, that real deep core issue of our guilt has been taken care of on the cross, clearing us of our guilty conscience, but also because he followed God and he was, he was not ashamed of the gospel. He was unashamed to publicly proclaim the gospel. And he could keep his conscience clear before God as well. And that, I think, is the same challenge that we all face today as Christ followers. Can we keep our conscience clear before God? Because not only do we know the reality of Jesus and what he's done for us, but because we have done the best we can to obey him, to follow him, to clearly live as an intentional missional witness in this culture, in this world. That's the only way to keep our conscience clear before God. And we've done everything that we can to engage the people around us with love and service and mercy and compassion, but we've not compromised. And we've not compromised both before men, but before God as well. So uh, please join me in prayer. Father, uh, we thank you for uh, your word that always shapes us and that speaks to the deepest issues of our hearts. Um, we thank you for this good news of the gospel, and I pray, Lord, that you would enable each one of us here, but as a church, uh, what it means to live as a faithful witness in a culture that sometimes likes what we do and likes what we have to say, but uh, sometimes really deeply opposes it, and give us wisdom uh, give us wisdom to know how to, to navigate, but give us clear convictions that are rooted in your word. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.